Siachisa lamla. Siachisa kakulu. It's a hot, hot day. But uh, we got the fans going. We got some water. We got the word of God. And so hopefully we can push through the next 20 or so minutes as we dwell upon this passage. It's quite an uncomfortable passage to listen to, isn't it? There are kind of three groups of characters in this unfolding narrative. Three pretty nasty people or groups of people. The first one is this guy over here, Pontius Pilate. Now, now Pontius Pilate, throughout this narrative, even though he's there as the judge, his primary concern is not justice. In fact, I don't think justice could even be numbered in the list of his concerns. His concern is, is political power, is maintaining his Roman superiority over the Jewish people and his status as Roman governor. That, that's the only thing he's interested in. And he's a little bit annoyed with these Jewish authorities because he doesn't want to be their errand boy. He doesn't just want to be the guy who they go to to execute everyone who they don't agree with. And so he's kind of resisting him. And so coincidentally, some of the time, Pilate lands on positions of justice. But he ra- lands on it for the wrong reasons. He lands on it because he doesn't want to be dictated to by the Jews. He wants to maintain his own political influence. This is the first person that we meet. I know I'm diving right in here, but, uh, but, but, but we'll see how it all, how it all frames uh, this story. The second person that we meet... Well, a group of people that we meet are the Roman soldiers. So, so these guys have a job, right? And their job is to maintain Roman supremacy through brutality, through tyranny. These guys, they don't have anything personal against Jesus. They, they might not know who he is, even. They're just, they're just bad eggs. They're just, they're just thugs. Their job is to beat people up. Their job is to brutalize people. Racists, you might call them. I don't know if that is the the, the right kind of category. Cultural supremacists, certainly. You know, they might not be bad people all around. They might treat their family well. But, but, But their identity is tied up in being Roman. Definitely nationalists. The the supremacy of the Roman Empire is what gives them their sense of of meaning and worth. And so they will do whatever it takes to maintain it. They get handed a prisoner, they, they, they beat him to a pulp without thinking about it. That's the third group of characters we meet. And the, the, the second, sorry, and the third are these guys, the Jewish leaders, the, the Sanhedrin. Now these guys do have personal grievances with Jesus. Jesus has been criticizing them throughout this gospel. 
And no doubt they are angered, personally angered by his attack on them. um, and, And not just that, but they also have theological differences with Jesus. Their their theology compels them to oppose him. And so you kind of have two people, two groups of people who thoroughly mistreat Jesus, but, but, but not because of anything personal against him, because of other factors. And then you have the Jews who hate him directly. And the question is, why does John take the time to walk us through all of this terrible, terrible skullduggery. I mean, John tells us the purpose of why he wrote the book in uh, chapter 20, verses 31, verses 30 and 31. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And the question is, John, by, by painstakingly walking us through all these machinations by these, this diverse group of very, very evil people, how does this in any way help us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we can have life in his name. I mean, John, can't you spend more time highlighting some of the other things that Jesus did, some of his power, you know, before he died or after he died even? I mean, he's, he's going to raise from the dead if he dies in very shameful circumstances where unknown men just brutalize him for no apparent reason. How does this add to our valuing our savoring of Jesus in any way? How does it help us to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God? I hope that as we dig into this passage, you you start to see why John might have decided to walk us through this brutal narrative. Because you see, in this narrative, John uses irony to show that even Jesus' enemies, in the height of their opposition to him, cannot help but give glory to him, cannot help but portray him as he truly is the king. And so we're going to look at this. Uh, the sermon is, has three, three points. First is, Jesus is disgraced among his enemies. The second is, Jesus is glorified among his enemies. And then the last is the point of application. Honor the king. Jesus is disgraced among his enemies. Jesus is glorified among his enemies honor the king let me pray lord god i thank you for this passage hard passage uncomfortable passage angering passage but i thank you that it is your word and that you 
were at work in the Apostle John to, to write this for a particular reason. And I pray that as we dwell on it, we would see that reason. We would see your kingship in the midst of great villainy. We would see your incomparable worth in amongst those who deem you to be worthless. Open our eyes and fill our hearts with these realities, I pray. Amen. First then, Jesus is disgraced among his enemies. This first verse is somewhat surprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. When Pilate had just said in verse 38 of chapter 18, I find no guilt in him. Well, why does he then go and take Jesus to be flogged? Well, as we see with the passage unfolding in verse 4, that his reason for taking Jesus to be flogged is actually a fresh strategy to try and release Jesus. Remember, Pilate is not concerned with justice, but he doesn't want to be the errand boy of the Jewish authorities. And so he's trying to resist their push for Jesus to be condemned. And so he takes Jesus off to have him flogged. And he hands them over to that second group of characters, those thugs, those Roman soldiers. And Jesus comes in, and they tell him this, this guy is, 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 is said to be a king amongst the Jews. And so the soldiers go, all right, we'll teach him a thing or two. And they see how much pain they can inflict upon Jesus, both with their words and with their actions. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. This clothing him in royal garments, this crown of thorns, this purple robe, is designed to rubbish Jesus' claims to authority. Ha! So you think you're a king, do you? Let's see how much of a king you look when the crown that you're wearing is bearing into your skull and causing blood to gush out and disfigure your face. Let's see how good that robe looks when it's ripped open by our whips. Pilate, seeing that the, the soldiers have done their bit, then comes out, as I mentioned, in, in verse 4, and says to the, the, the Jews, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And so Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate says to them, Behold the man. 
dripping with sarcasm. This is the one that you're telling me I need to be all afraid of. This is this mighty ruler who you say is a threat to the Roman Empire. And here he is dripping in blood. Behold the man. You really want me to crucify this? But far from diverting the Jewish leaders' determination to have him crucified, this just intensifies it. And they are outraged by Pilate's maneuvering, and so they cry out all the more, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate suggests, take him and crucify him yourself. He, he knows that the Jewish leaders have no authority to crucify anyone. And so this is another taunt. Ha! You think you've got power over me? You think you've got authority? Go on. You want him crucified? Let's see you crucify him. And then there in verse 6 he says, For the third time in the, in the last few verses, I find no guilt in him. And this taunting by Pilate pushes the Jews into hysteria. And, and they, 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 they cry out in uh, verse 7. We have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself a son of God. This claim is problematic in a few ways. Firstly, it's, it's not true. There is no law against claiming to be a son of God. In the Old Testament, a lot of kings were given the title son of God. It's the claim to be God itself that is blasphemous. But the second problem for the Jews in this statement is it has the intended effect of, of, of turning Pilate against Jesus. But what it actually does is it puts fear into Pilate. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. A lot of these Roman governors were very superstitious men. And this, this phrase, son of God, would have put an idea in Pilate's mind of, of some kind of divine man. Some kind of divine human being who he had just taken off to be flogged. And so Pilate is very scared and he's the one who now starts to panic. So he pulls Jesus aside and he asks him, where are you from? Where are you from? How can Jesus answer this question before Pilate? Where do you begin the explanation? I'm from heaven. I've dwelt from eternity past with my Father and the Holy Spirit. I was born of the Virgin Mary in, in Galilee. I went off to Egypt. Where do, you, where do you begin with this pagan that he might understand him? Will he give you the time to complete your sentence? And so he just keeps quiet. And of course, for those of you who know your Old Testament, you can't help but be reminded of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened, not his mouth. It wasn't a sincere question that could have led anywhere conducive and so Jesus doesn't dignify it with an answer. And this makes Pilate so angry. And so he has this show of power. And he threatens Jesus. You will not speak to me, he says in verse 10. Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And authority to crucify you? And I'm sure Jesus' response only angered him even more. Because Jesus is in no way cowed by these threats. He just says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he delivered me over to you. He who who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin. Jesus is supposed to be shivering at the threat of crucifixion. And here is Jesus judging the one who is supposed to be judging him. And this has a chilling effect on Pilate, and so he moves to try and release him. But of course, the Jewish authorities double down, and so Pilate finally capitulates. And he hands Jesus over to be crucified. These are the circumstances under which Jesus was sentenced. These are the people that he was surrounded with. It paints a picture of Jesus disgraced by his enemies, disgraced by evil men. And yet, if that is all we see from this narrative, we completely miss what John is trying to do in retelling it. The second point is Jesus is glorified among his enemies. See, these sort of visuals here are the reason why many people reject Jesus as the hope of humanity. The Jewish community has rejected Jesus' claims to be Messiah for over two millennia because they were expecting a Messiah who would be king, a Messiah who would have power, a Messiah who would be unlike any other who you could look at and see his authority. A Muslim apologist I once listened to who was giving an introduction to Islam said something I thought was quite uh, insightful. He said, um, in Islam, the the anti-hero is never the hero. Weakness is not glorified in Islam. Strength is. Strength is strength. And strength is to be celebrated. And so this picture of a savior 
bleeding profusely from his forehead, being slandered on the left and on the right by everyone around him, being handed from one person to the next and cursed and spat upon and slapped in the face. It's not a very compelling picture. And yet what John is doing through it and in it is he's showing us that Jesus is the king even in the midst of this vile opposition. And John uses these people's words to expose them. Pilate and and the Jewish authorities are shown to not be the the people that they claim to be through their mistreatment of Jesus. So we saw in in verse 11, uh, verse 10 I think, Pilate talked this big game. Pilate used these these threatening words. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Pilate wants to present himself as this untouchable guy, unswayed by the opinions of those around him. I can do with you whatever I like. And yet Pilate... Why do you have Jesus flogged in verse 1? If this decision was your own, if you weren't swayed by those around you, then judge him on whether he's innocent or guilty. If you keep on saying he's not guilty, why do you have to use these other means to try and get him off the hook? Pilate is enslaved to the lust for power. And he thinks he can maneuver the situation where he can let Jesus go. But when it becomes apparent that the Jewish leaders won't be budged, despite the fact that he said three times this man is not guilty, he hands him over to be crucified. Pilate's mistreatment of Jesus exposes the fact that he does not have the authority that he claims to have. In a similar way, the Jewish leaders' mistreatment of Jesus show that they aren't who they say they are either. They want to present themselves as being the protectors of the nation of Israel. And they're preparing to celebrate Passover, the feast celebrating freedom from foreign oppression and yet as Jim pointed out uh, in a sermon a few weeks back here they are handing one of their own people over to the foreign oppressors on this feast day when they're supposed to be celebrating freedom from foreign oppressors 
and not just one of their own people, but the very salvation of Israel. And verses 14 to 16a bring stabbing irony to their claim to be the guardians of Israel. It reads, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Can you put the slide up on dramatic irony? This is an instance of dramatic irony. Now the word irony tends to get rather overused. It tends to get used in contexts that aren't actually ironic. Uh, But this is a true case of irony. So you get different types of irony, but this is dramatic irony. Dramatic irony is a literary technique originally used in Greek tragedy by which the full significance of a character's words or actions is clear to the audience or reader, although unknown to the character. So so it's it's an author's technique where he gets the character to say something and the character doesn't know the full significance of the things that they say, but the audience does. And and, and so what you see here, we have no king but Caesar. The Jewish leaders here think that they are being ironic. They think that, that, that they're just saying something, saying anything to get Jesus crucified, to see their, their enemy put away. And they laugh to themselves. Of course we're not Caesar's. But we'll, we'll say what we like. And yet, unbeknownst to them, they are Caesars. They are in league with Caesar. Listen to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Yeah, the Jewish leaders might be the enemies of Caesar. But what Psalm 2 is telling us is that all tyrannical leaders whether allies or enemies, whether they know it or not, are united in their opposition to the Lord and His Anointed One. And so they think they're being so funny by saying, we have no king but Caesar. And the stabbing irony is that that is true. They and Caesar are working together to oppose the Lord and oppose his anointed one. And this is not the only place that John uses irony in this passage. This whole passage is just threaded through with irony. 
I mean, listen to the words of the soldiers in verse 3. Hail, King of the Jews. Hail, the King. And again, I think they're being so clever. You think you're king, so we will treat you like a king. And their words are so much truer than they could ever know. We sung their words today. Vayete Nkosi, hail the king. And though they said that to mock Jesus, John takes their words to display the fact that Jesus is king. Yes, he may have come in weakness. Yes, he may wear a crown of thorns. But these things only point forward to the deeper and truer reality that he is the conquering king before whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. He is the judge who will come to judge all people. Despite the fact that Pilate sits down to judge him. These evil men's opposition to Jesus only serve to highlight who Jesus really is. Only serve to point to the fact that he is the king. And so the call comes to you today to honor the king. Jesus will be glorified. Whether you fall at his feet or whether you revile him. He is the king and his kingship will not be stripped away by evil men. You can deny him, but you can never dethrone him. Whether you spit at him or whether you fall down before him in one way or other, when all of history is written, when all is said and done, your life is going to display the fact that Jesus is the king. He might be the king that you hate, that you have always sought to rebel against. Or he might be the king that you love, that you treasure above all else, for whom you are willing to die, for whom you are willing to be spat on and afflicted and scorned. But whatever type of king he will be for you will never change the fact that he is the king. See, at the end of the day, that Muslim apologist is right. Strength is strength. And strength is 
good. Strength is to be celebrated. Yes, Jesus came in weakness and he took on our frailty. He took on sin and he took on death. And he went to the ultimate point of weakness in having his life taken away from him. But when he rose, he conquered death and he conquered weakness. He rose in power, never to die again. And he will not be subject to evil men. Jesus is the king and he is a strong king. So don't be so distracted about all the power plays around you, all the connivings of wicked men and women. Set your eyes on your king. Bow down to him. Trust him. Obey him. Honor him. Because his glory he will share with no other. He is the king and he deserves your honor. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this passage of scripture. as uncomfortable as it is to read, as unjust as the whole affair is. I thank you for how it points to the fact that you are king. And you subjected yourself to weakness and you allowed yourself to be spat upon and flogged and mocked. But that no more changed the fact that you are the king. Than flinging dust at a mountain can change it from being a mountain. And so even if our eyes do not see all the glory of your majesty right now, even if your kingship continues to be veiled in an evil world, I pray that you would give us eyes to see your kingship and hearts that love it and joyfully submit to your awesome sovereignty. It's in your name we pray. Amen.